0: Hey guys, it's Ellie, and welcome to Minute Mysteries. You're in the right place. So if you've never been here before, first of all, welcome! I hope you stick around and enjoy the podcast. So also if you've never been here before, let me kind of explain what this podcast is. So I have this book, it's called Minute Mysteries, it's by H.A. Ripley. It was published, you know, 90 years ago or something. And uh, it's actually linked in the show notes if you want to follow along. But basically it's full of what are called Minute Mysteries. And if you don't know, they're basically just logic puzzles, scenarios, like stuff like that that tests your deductive and logical skills. They're they're a lot of fun, (laughs) to sum it up. Solving one makes you feel like Sherlock Holmes. It's pretty great. Um, So each episode, I read three of them. And after I read each one, I try my best to solve them. And and so, you know, I, I go through it. I often summarize and kind of like recap what we read to kind of help wrap my mind around it. And then once I've done all my thinking, I put forth either my best guess or the solution that I'm confident in or maybe nothing, because I just have no idea. And then we read the solution together, and then we saw, but how much we failed. <laughs> uh, but really, I mean, they are a lot of fun, and I actually have gotten a good amount right. Um, however, the last couple weeks, I haven't been doing so great. Um, last week, I got one out of the three correct, which, all things considered, is pretty okay, because the week before, I got zero out of three right. So, <laughs> let's see if we can do better than last week, yeah? With no more waffle, let's jump right in. forgery. Can it be possible that this has happened to me? thought Everett Tabor, as he stood in the National Bank of New York, ready to deposit his fortune. Having completed his arrangements late the day before with the bank's executives, he was the first patron of the morning. Standing alone in the bank's commodious quarters, he regretted he had no one with whom to share his happiness. Suddenly, as he was making out his deposit slip, he decided to use his own name, Everett Mead, instead of his stepfather's name, by which he had been known most of his life. It would be a simple matter to arrange this with the officials later. As he blotted the deposit slip, Everett and Meade felt a new sense of poise and self-assurance take possession of him. He gazed fondly at the name which proclaimed him a wealthy man. By changing it, he could completely sever former associations and start life anew. What a wonderful day it was. The cashier, impressed with the amount of the deposit, was very obliging and wondered, as he thought of his own meager salary, how it would feel to have so much money. I see you are left-handed, Mr. Mead, he said, in an effort to appear interested in such an important personage. Yes, smilingly. He left the bank without further conversation. Less than an hour later, his name had been forged to a check for $5,000, despite the fact that no one knew he had changed his name and no one had seen him make out his deposit slip. Professor Fordney, acquainted with the fact, knew immediately how the forgery had been accomplished. Do you? Oh, what the? What? <laughs> I've never read one like this. Usually they're really straightforward. They're just kind of like, so-and-so said that a robbery happened, but for real, they're the ones that committed the robbery. So what's the problem in this story? That's generally kind of how it goes, you know? Like, there's a pattern. It's, it's generally pretty straightforward. But this one is just kind of like, this is what happened? There was a crime committed somewhere. <laughs> um, so obviously this is about forgery and changing names. And so Everett Tabor... In the very beginning, it says, Everett Tabor stood in the National Bank of New York ready to deposit his fortune, right? And he made out his deposit slip, and he put on his own name, Everett Mead, instead of his stepfather's name. Tabor? So yeah, I, I guess his stepfather's name is Tabor, and his last name is Mead. Oh. Wait, what? Okay, so Everett Tabor is Everett Mead's stepfather's name, right? And nobody knows that he's now going by Everett Mead, because, you know, he changed his name and everything. But the cashier refers to him as Mr. Mead. (laughs) That is, he's not supposed to know that he's now changed his last name to Mead instead of Tabor. I don't know how that ties into the actual solution, but like, he shouldn't know his name, you know? So also at the very end, it says that no one knew that he had changed his name and no one had seen him make out his deposit slip. And earlier it does say that he blotted the deposit slip and there was nobody else in the bank. He was the first person that was in there in the morning. So that makes sense. I mean, I guess the bank tellers could have seen, but, like, you know, whatever. It literally says that, quote, "...standing alone in the bank's commodious quarters, he regretted the..." You know, so on, so on. So he was standing alone in the bank. So it makes sense, 100%. No one else saw him make out the deposit slip. But, like, as I mentioned before, the one hole that I can find is that someone did know that he changed his name. Because he changed his name from Everett Tabor to Everett Mead, right? And according to the, the very end, again, let me repeat myself... They didn't know that he changed his name, and yet the cashier still calls him Mr. Mead. And so, there's a hole in his story somewhere. I don't know how it connects to forgery. Like, I don't know how that whole story weaves together. But maybe we can figure it out. Let's see. So, the the whole cashier calling him Mr. Mead thing, that's all I can find. But that seems like a really obvious fact that, like, he called him by the wrong name. But, like, that seems too obvious. Like, that seems like... Something that would be really easy to spot, so I feel like there's something more here that I'm not seeing. Am I overthinking this? I think I might be overthinking this. Oh man, I don't know. (laughs) So, aside from the cashier name thing, I'm confused about what was forged in the first place. Oh, wait. Okay, so, I was misunderstanding. I thought that he was the one that was forging the check, and then uh, he was stealing someone else's money. But it says, I read this wrong, but it says that, quote, Less than an hour later, his name had been forged to a check for $5,000, despite the fact that, and so on and so forth. So, that means his signature was forged, rather than him forging someone else's signature. That's my mistake. I'm just stupid. Uh, (laughs) The question that they ask at the end is, do you know how the forgery was accomplished? And I think so, because it was the cashier, obviously. Because, first of all, the cashier would have been in the bank, sitting at his desk, being able to see where Mr. Mead was standing, making his check. And then he also knew that he was left-handed, so that could kind of help him in the forgery process. I'm just now realizing that it's completely fine for the cashier to call him Everett Mead because he was just handed a check with the name Everett Mead on it. Oh my goodness. (laughs) It would have been strange if he called him Mr. Tabor, because, I mean, it's not on the check, so, I mean, that would be a problem. But no, I mean... Oh man, see, <laughs> I'm just glad I caught my mistake, you know? Like, if I had thought that that was the truth, it would have been so sad. So anyways, um, I think that the way that the forgery was committed was the cashier, I don't know whether or not he actually saw him write the deposit, but the cashier at least knew his name and knew that he was left-handed, because, I mean, you know, that's an important fact. If you're a, if you're a forger and you use a different hand to write than the person you're forging, it comes out different, right? So yeah, let's return to the very end where it says, No one knew that Everett had changed his name and no one had seen him make out his deposit slip. um, Except that the people who did know that he changed his name and who had seen him make out his deposit slip was the cashier. The cashier knew he had changed his name because he saw the name on the check. And like I mentioned before, the cashier probably saw him write out the check um, in, like, the lobby or wherever he was. Or also, like, he saw him hand in the check. So either way, it doesn't matter if he saw him write it. It just matters that he like, knew what his name was and that he was left-handed. So, anyways, (laughs) I'm probably not making any sense now, but the question that they asked at the end was, do you know how the forgery was accomplished? And yes, I believe I do. I believe that it was the cashier, and oh my goodness, I've gone way too far into this. I always tend to overthink the first puzzle, I don't know why. Um, But yeah, let's just read the solution and see if anything I threw at the wall actually stuck. The forged signature was copied from the blotter which Mead had used. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Oh, I overthought the crap out of that one. Oh my goodness. I overthought that into space. (laughs) Like, yeah, of course, he used a blotter so you could just copy it from there. Oh my goodness. Dude, wow, that was very long-winded. But hey, I really enjoyed that. And despite my overthinking, I still enjoyed being able to analyze the story to the best of my ability. With that, let's move on to the second puzzle for the day. The Christmas Eve Tragedy. Professor Fordney, said Sheriff Brown of Lake Dalton, I came to New York to ask your help in clearing up the murder of Horace Perkins at Luckley Lodge. Sit down and tell me about it. The family chauffeur, returning from the station at 10 o'clock on Christmas Eve, found Perkins lying in a field five yards off the lodge drive, with his skull bashed in. He telephoned me immediately, and I instructed him to see that nothing was disturbed. Arriving 15 minutes later, I personally examined the ground so no clues would be destroyed. The only footprints to be found were six of Perkins's leading from the drive to the spot where he lay. Around the body were a number of deep impressions about two inches square. It had been snowing all day until half an hour before the discovery of Perkins. Leading away from the body and ending at the main road, 200 yards distant, were four lines of these same impressions about three and a half feet apart in length and about 14 inches in width. In some places, however, they were badly run together. A stranger in our parts is quickly noted, and investigation failed to reveal a recent one. There were absolutely no other clues, and I could find no motive for the crime. It has me stumped, Professor, concluded Brown. Give me little time, said Fordney. Perhaps I can help. I'll call you at your hotel. An hour later, he said over the telephone, Sheriff, look for a man who, blankety-blank-blank, blank, such a person only could possibly have committed the murder. What did Fordney say to Brown? Oh, goodness, I don't know. Whew. It's a fun murder mystery. Let's do this. So let's see, the details of the crime are thus. The chauffeur, at 10 o'clock p.m., found Perkins, the murdered man, lying in a field only five yards off from the lodge drive with his skull bashed in. The chauffeur proceeded to call the sheriff immediately, and the chauffeur was instructed to make sure that nothing was touched. And so only 15 minutes later, the uh, police arrived and he, you know, looked at the scene. And so, the clues that he found went as follows. The only footprints found near the body were six of Perkins leading from the drive to the spot where he lay. Remember, he was only five yards away from the drive, so six footsteps would be about, like, three steps, you know? So, that sounds about right to me. So, also, near the body, he found a number of deep impressions about two inches square. And another important detail is that it had been snowing all day until half an hour before the discovery of Perkins. So, we can assume that Perkins was killed between a half hour before he was found and when he was found. So there was kind of a half hour window there for his murder, because otherwise the prints in the snow wouldn't show up because, you know, the continual snowfall. So, let's see, another detail that is noted is that um, leading away from the body and ending 200 yards distant at the main road, there were four lines of those same two-inch square impressions in the snow, and they were each about three and a half feet apart and um, 14 inches in width. So, oh, dang. And in some places, they were, like, badly run together and stuff like that. So, I think the main mystery here is the mystery of the weird square marks in the snow. I think that's mostly what we're going to be focusing on. So, anyways, that's basically all the clues that were given. <laughs> the, the Funnily enough, my first thought was that these weird square marks in the snow were actually caused by someone wearing stilts. Um, I, I find that funny just because of the image that it puts in my mind. Like, some random person wearing stilts and, like, leaning over the body of some dead guy. These, like, absurd-looking stilts. Anyways, um, (laughs) that's beside the point, but I think it's funny. Um, So, yeah, I think that's a possibility, honestly, because um, these impressions that were mentioned leading away from the body, or to the body, or however you think about it, from the main road 200 yards away, were described as, quote, four lines of the impressions, about three and a half feet apart in length and 14 inches in width. So... The way that I imagine that is kind of like a footprint pattern kind of thing, where it's, like, alternating each side, you know? You know what a footprint line looks like. That's what I'm imagining with these square indents. Like, I think they're kind of, you know, in a pattern kind of like footprints. Because it describes, like, three and a half feet apart, which obviously is a really big leg span, but when you have stilts on, that's not too surprising. Um, and also 14 inches apart, which also makes sense, you know, if you're walking on stilts, you kind of spread your legs a little bit more than, you know, ankles together. Anyways, so... <laughs> honestly? I think that stilts is actually kind of possible, which I think is hilarious. Um, however, the question is, what did Fortney say to Brown? And what Fortney said was, quote, "Sheriff, look for a man who blank. Such a person only could have possibly committed the murder." So we need to look for a man who has some attribute. So what kind of a man would wear stilts <laughs> or something? I don't. I don't know. I'm still kind of stuck on the stilts idea because I just find it so amusing. And honestly. It's kind of possible considering all these square marks in the snow and the fact that there are no other footprints Um, because obviously he was murdered. Like you can't exactly bash in your own skull. It's kind of hard to do, you know. The only problem with my stilts idea is that in the description of the uh, marks in the snow that lead away from the body over to the main road, you know, that 200 yard length that I've kind of been talking about. In the very end, it says, quote, in some places they were badly run together. They're referring to the marks. So if you're wearing stilts, How do the marks run together? It also says there are four lines of these impressions. Um, So I think that there were two people walking in a line next to each other. And so their lines of footprints kind of uh, made it look like there were four separate, you know, little lines of these squares. Um, So yeah, I think it was two people involved. However, what Fortnite says at the end is, look for a man who blank like it doesn't say look for a group of people or, or look for men who blank like it's implied that there's only one person involved so that is it's a little bit of a hole in my theory but hey you know I will die on this stilt hill okay <laughs> even if it's a really dumb theory and it ends up being wrong I still think that it would be really entertaining if someone wrote a mystery puzzle where the solution was that the murderer just wore stilts <laughs> that'd be so funny so yeah anyways um yeah I mean Considering that I'm probably not going to change my mind on the stilt idea, (laughs) let's just read the solution. The professor said to Brown, Sheriff, look for a man in your community who is skilled or adept in the use of stilts. Only a man on stilts could have made the marks in the snow you described. Oh, wait. It was- It was really stilts? (laughs) Dude, I thought that idea was absurd. I didn't think that was going to actually be the solution. But I guess the more I think about it, the more it makes sense. Because, I mean, I I was thinking about this as I was reading the solution, but, like, I I mentioned right before I read the solution that, like, I expected there to be two people involved because there were four lines of those marks in the snow and not just two because, you know, two feet. But then I realized there and back, like, two rows for there, two rows for back. I mean, it makes sense. Like, (laughs) I don't know. I didn't think about that. But, dude, oh, my gosh. Dang. Okay. Woo. I am so happy about that, dude. Oh my goodness. My stilts theory was correct? Like, I genuinely did not expect that. I expected it to be something completely different. I didn't know what it was gonna be, obviously. But I didn't expect it to be the stilts. <laughs> uh, I love it. Oh, that, that was so good. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, anyways, let's move on to the third puzzle. A knight of the bath. And knight is K-N-I-G-H-T, by the way. You've heard of me speak of my accent... "'You've heard of me speak of my eccentric friend, Joe Limert, haven't you, Professor?' inquired Judd. "'Great character. His costly Los Angeles penthouse is the despair of architects, but it reflects Joe, who cares little for the opinions of others. Particularly in the matter of baths is his independence reflected. While he has six of them, he is fondest of the one leading off his own room. It is a large, all-tile bath, twenty-four feet long, fifteen wide, and seven high, without a single window.' He went into bathe a few days ago, locked the door on the inside, as was his habit, and turned the cold water full on. When he went to turn it off, he found to his dismay that the mechanism controlling the drain and the taps was out of order. He couldn't let the water out, and he couldn't turn the tap off. Neither could he unlock the door, and it was impossible to make himself heard. What a predicament. There he was, in a locked bath with no window, couldn't open or break down the door, couldn't let the water out or turn it off, and he had no way of attracting attention. Such a situation might have disturbed most people, but not Joe. He leisurely proceeded with his bath, and when finished, nonchalantly departed. "'My dear Judd," smiled the professor, "'your friend was indeed eccentric. Of course, there was only one way out for him. "'This one's easy, don't you think?' "'Hey, don't patronize me. (laughs) That's rude.' (laughs) Okay, this is actually a very unique one. Similar to the first puzzle we read, it doesn't exactly line up with the established pattern that we've had before in these puzzles, so yeah, this will be an interesting one to solve. I wouldn't describe it as a locked room mystery, but it has the same elements as a locked room mystery because it's in, because it's in a very restricted space with restricted uh, possibilities and options of what to do, so I mean, I think it's similar to a locked room mystery in that way. So yeah, let's kind of go over, like, what's going on. So basically, this guy goes in to take a bath. He goes into his bathroom, he locks the door from the inside, and then once he goes to turn it off, he realizes that he can't. And then also, he can't drain it out. So there's no drain, there's no way to turn off the water, and he's stuck in this bathroom with the door locked and no window. And Judd apparently nonchalantly just gets out. Or whatever his name is. I think his name is Joe. So (laughs) I just wanted to note that, first of all, this bath is massive. It is 24 feet long, 15 feet wide, and 7 feet high. Like, what the heck? (laughs) So, first of all, I wouldn't be worried about drowning anytime soon just because of the sheer volume of this bath, right? So I'm assuming that his bath is just, like, you know, a a full-on pool room. Like, if you think of a bath right now, you think of, like, a small kind of, like, shower-like enclosure. No, I assume this bath is much, you know, it's like a room in itself. It's not, like, part of a bathroom. So anyways, but, like, another thing that I'm kind of confused about is that, like, it says he couldn't unlock the door why not? (laughs) Like, it says that he locked it from the inside, so he should be able to unlock it. Like, was the water blocking the door? Like, it it doesn't say anything about that, so I'm kind of (laughs) confused. Also, another thing that I'm confused about, this has nothing to do with his solution, or maybe it doesn't, I'm just unaware, um, why did he turn on the cold water fully? Like, (laughs) do you enjoy cold baths? Like, there are people who enjoy cold baths, but that is not a very common thing. I personally do not enjoy sitting in cold, sad, miserable water for, you know, an extended amount of time, or any amount of time for that matter. (laughs) So either this man just has strange tastes, which, I mean, I suppose it's established that he does, but also, like, I don't know, like, who has a cold bath? Like, (laughs) uh, that might even have bearing on a solution. Like, it might, you know, affect how the water flows or something. I don't know. But either way, I mean, yeah, I don't know the solution here. Let's just keep looking. So at the very end, it says that Joe, quote, leisurely proceeded with his bath, and when finished, nonchalantly departed. Like I mentioned before, one thing I'm unclear on is what type of bath it is, because again, like I mentioned before, if you think of a bath nowadays, you think of like the shower enclosure with a faucet sort of thing, like a little like bath just big enough to hold one person, but from this description, it is all tile, connected to his bedroom, and 24 feet long, 15 wide, and 7 high. So considering that it's 7 feet high, I assume that it's like a full room in its own so it's not like a regular bath like you or I would think of but it's like a room so I'm imagining almost like a a pool room or like a hot tub or like a sauna even something like that um so it makes sense that he couldn't like open the window because who has a window in a bathroom you know and by bathroom I mean a room with a bath in it and not like the (laughs) not what you think of when you think of bathroom um Yeah, so my concern is not that he would drown before he finished his bath, because as we have mentioned, this is a huge bath. Like, I wouldn't be worried about overflowing this bath. I mean, honestly, I wouldn't, because it's just a big room. Whether or not the bath itself is that big, uh, it doesn't matter. It just matters that the room itself is huge, so I wouldn't worry about drowning. I'm just confused about how he got out of the room, you know? Like, that's the whole question. How did he get out of the room when it said that he could not unlock the door or anything? I think I would be able to easily solve this puzzle if I knew exactly what type of bath he was describing. Like, I think I'm just unclear on that point. So, (laughs) I mean, yeah. So, man, I keep thinking that the, the, the detail with the cold water has something to do with it. Like, has something to do with the solution. Like, the fact that he had cold water and not the regular hot water that most people have. That has to be important, but I just don't know how. So yeah, I mean, they're talking about, like, the eccentricities of his friend Joe, and I think personally that that might be part of the solution. Like, the fact that Joe was so eccentric that he'd try something so strange to get out of a bathroom that was overflowing, I mean, that implies that the solution is equally as eccentric and strange as this guy is, but I don't know what it is. Like, oh, it's gonna be so obvious when I read the solution, but, like, it's just not coming to my brain right now. My little monkey brain is having trouble, okay? (laughs) But anyway, uh, yeah, so I am at a loss. I mean, the only solution that I can think of is that he opened the door because i don't see I don't see any specific reason why he couldn't open the door, so, yeah, I mean, let's just read the solution and see what it really is. You recall that Limert was eccentric, no mention of bath room was made. limert's bath had no top, so he climbed out, oh, see. I made the foolish assumption that since it was seven feet tall, that it was a room in itself. (laughs) But no, apparently that was foolhardy of me, so (laughs) I stand corrected. I I mean, just the image in my head of like some eccentric weird old dude wearing a bath towel or nothing at all, clambering in his soaking wet slippery body, climbing over an all tile seven foot tall wall, like... (laughs) No wonder the solution didn't come to me, because who does that? But, I mean, he's eccentric. I mean, that's kind of his whole personage. I mean, as I had assumed, that was indeed a very strange and absurd solution to a problem. (laughs) Um, However, sir, the problem remains that your bathroom... or Sorry, your bath is overflowing, and no matter how big it is, it will still overflow. And so... You'll have to get that plumbing fixed pretty quickly, otherwise you will have a much larger problem on your hands than just trying to climb over a seven foot tall wall while probably butt naked. (laughs) Uh, So anyways, uh, yeah, that'll end the episode for today. That was very, very enjoyable. Even though I only got one correct, I thoroughly enjoyed this episode. Like genuinely more than others, mostly because my stilts theory was correct. Oh my goodness, dude the satisfaction that I gained from that being the solution was immeasurable. (laughs) But also just the image in my head from the third puzzle that I just mentioned of some random old guy climbing over a tile wall wearing nothing at all, I mean, that image in my head just makes me laugh. But the first one was also really interesting because it was- it broke away from the pattern that we usually read and it was really interesting to try and overanalyze what this puzzle was asking us to find out because, I mean, I did overanalyze it because I got way off the mark and I thought way too hard on things, but (laughs) that's generally how I go. So, yeah, anyways, all three of the puzzles today were, you know, bangers. They were all really good. I got two of them wrong, but I'm glad to say this. I got one of them right, and it was the best puzzle ever. (laughs) Uh, So anyways, yeah, I just have a couple of things to say. First of all, if you um, enjoy the podcast, if you have any feedback or comments, or especially this, if you have any recommendations for authors or logic puzzles or, you know, any other books or stories that I should read, send them to me, classicmysteriespod at gmail.com. I'd love to hear what you're reading right now or what you'd like me to read or stuff like that. And also, I'm sure you've noticed, you're on the Classic Mysteries podcast feed. However, this episode is called "Mini Mysteries. Strange, right? <laughs> So uh, this series is kind of my what I call my sub-series on the feed. It's kind of a quote-unquote mini-episode that I do every week, although lately it's kind of been the same length as my regular episodes. Um, but it's basically something I do every week on Thursdays, and it's just like some fun puzzle-solving antics. And my regular episodes, which are called Classic Mysteries, are released on Mondays, every Monday at midnight, for me at least. And they're also very entertaining. I read a classic mystery book or story, And I comment on it. Overall, we just have a fun time reading these old books and uh, laughing at the absurdity of, of the old times sometimes and appreciating the story and the artistry of the author. So anyways, it's fun and I think that you'll enjoy it. So if you've never listened to a regular episode of Classic Mysteries, I would highly suggest you do. I just finished reading a couple of short stories. I read a Sherlock Holmes short story called The Musgrave Ritual. The podcast episode is number 23. And then lately, I just finished an Agatha Christie story called the adventure of the cheap flat and that was episode 24 i just finished that one last week and yeah either way i would highly suggest you listen to them they're very entertaining i hope that you have a wonderful weekend uh, because i definitely will so uh yeah i'll see you guys next thursday adios